Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Can we say amen to the song again? Thank you for the song and uh, even uh, you come all the way from Indonesia to grace us with that. And uh, for those that don't know, Amanda's leaving in about a month. So, uh, you know, we're hoping for something else. But I didn't want to put it into the prayer requests. But um, we're thankful for all that she's done here and bless us with. I know that many of us are thankful for that. Um, but we will pray for God's blessings to be with her as she moves on in about a month's time. She looks like she's about to cry, so I need to stop talking about it. Well, before we get into the message for this morning, I just want to ask you to bow your heads with me for order prayer. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, Lord, we've come to this time to study your word together. And Lord, we pray that Jesus Christ would be uplifted. We pray that you'd help us to put aside all other thoughts that would distract us from your word. I pray that you'd help us most of all to hear the voice of your Holy Spirit speaking to us. Grace us now, O Lord, please, with thy presence. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to be continuing what we started two weeks ago when we looked at a very, very famous story that we find throughout all four Gospels. And what story was that? It was the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And um, we finished there in about verse 13. And um, we're going to look at this again, not the story itself, but we're going to see how it connects with the rest of this chapter and why this story has been put in here in John chapter 6. But I want to pick it up in verse 14. It is the end of the feeding of the 5,000. And in verse 14, the Bible says, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. And when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. At the end of the feeding of this 5,000, the people were amazed, they were shocked, they've never seen anything like this since God had been feeding the Israelites in the desert when they came out of Egypt, and they were ready to make him king because of this very incident. And Jesus, seeing that it was against what God's plan was for him, he quickly dispersed the crowd, he quickly put the disciples on a boat, and he himself went off into the mountain to pray. I want you to notice what the pen of inspiration says in Desire of Ages. It's very interesting. All day the conviction has strengthened. That crowning act is an assurance that the long-looked-for deliverer is among them. Because of the feeding of the 5,000, they thought this is that deliverer. The hopes of the people rise higher and higher. This is he who will make Judea what? An earthly paradise a land flowing with milk and honey. He can satisfy every desire. He can break the power of the 
hated Romans. Look, he was the promised deliverer, but not to the extent that they were thinking. Look at what they were thinking. He can deliver Judah and Jerusalem. He can heal the soldiers who are wounded in battle. He can supply whole armies with food. He can conquer the nations and give to Israel the long-sought dominion. This is what they had in mind. We'll send out our people, and no matter whether they are trained or not, Jesus can heal them, and He can feed them, and we'll just conquer everybody. That's exactly what they were thinking in their mind at the end of the feeding of the 5,000. Come back with me in your scriptures in verse 16. The Bible continues, And when even was now come, His disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship, and went over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus, what? Walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship. And they were afraid. But he said unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, And immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. This passage of Scripture actually does not do justice actually to what happened. It is referring to that time when Jesus came and walked on the water, but in other Gospels, it gives us an account of when Peter saw Jesus, he said what? If it's really you, bid me to come out onto the water to you. And Jesus said, come. The disciples had met a storm that even as experienced fishermen, it caught them by surprise. And they were rowing, really, for their lives. If you see how far they had gone, the 25 to 30 furlongs was about 4 to 5 kilometers. It's not a short distance when you're rowing on a boat. To a car, it is not too much, but this was a far distance, and they were not near the shore. But Why did Jesus allow this storm to come upon the disciples? Why was it that when the disciples got into this boat that Jesus knew the storm was coming, but yet He sent them off anyways? It was very much to do with what had just happened with with this crowd, including the disciples. They were all ready to make Jesus what? King. And because of this dispersion and because Jesus kind of rejected what the disciples were trying to do, the disciples started to get discouraged. They began to wonder, maybe He is not the Messiah after all. Unbelief was taking possession of their minds and hearts. Love of honor had blinded them. They knew that Jesus was hated by the Pharisees, and they were eager to see Him exalted as they thought He should be. To be united with a teacher who could work mighty miracles, and yet to be reviled as deceivers was a trial they could ill endure. Were they always to be accounted followers of a false prophet? That was the popular sentiment At that time, Jesus was a false prophet, and those disciples, they're deluded. Would Christ never assert His authority as King? Why did not He who possessed such power 
reveal Himself in His true character and make their way less painful. Why had He not saved John the Baptist from a violent death? Thus the disciples reasoned until they brought upon themselves, what? Great spiritual darkness. They questioned, could Jesus be an imposter as the Pharisees asserted? You know, when Jesus put them on that boat, they began to doubt. Why would Jesus do such miracles and yet not take His throne? It didn't make sense to them. Jesus displayed a power that was manifested that before man had never done. He showed them, I am something special. I'm different. But instead of realizing that He was the Messiah and His spiritual mission, they thought He was to be king and rule as an emperor in some sorts. So because He showed them this, yet it did not logically lead to a throne, they began to doubt. You know, friends, sometimes uh, we're like this. I think sometimes we misunderstand how Christ works. And that when He doesn't work in the manner that we are expecting, we begin to doubt about Him at all. Have you ever experienced that? When you go through a trial and Jesus is meant to help me because I stood faithful for Him. How come He didn't help me? And when He doesn't come through in the manner that we expect, unbelief also begins to grow also in our own hearts. And I find that this really sets the tone for the rest of what we see in John chapter 6. Let's go back there, shall we? So Jesus and His disciples, they get over to the other side. The people come looking for Jesus, and they can't find Him. He's left. He's gone. They saw Him go up to the mountain. They saw the disciples go the other direction, and yet they can't find Him. But when they land, it's only a matter of time before they find Jesus again. Let's jump down to verse 25. And when they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said unto Him, Rabbi, whence comest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat that endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. You know, Jesus took this opportunity to teach them about a spiritual lesson as He always did on every possible occasion. They were coming and He read their hearts because He read their hearts because they were coming because they wanted to eat again. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It was Jesus' suggestion to feed the 5,000 at the very beginning anyways. But He said there, labor not for the meat which perisheth but rather labor for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Friends, I want you to understand that everlasting life is not a cakewalk. It's not a walk in the park. It's not a bed of roses. It requires labor. And to the extent that we labor for food or for meat that perishes, I want to challenge you to labor just as hard 
for the study of the Scriptures, for the meat that endures unto everlasting life. Easier said than done. But the amount of concentration, the amount of effort, the amount of intellect and pressure that's put on you to perform for work, I want you to put that same amount of effort into laboring for meat that perishes not. For I believe that if we put the same amount of effort into the spiritual as we do into the physical, we would see a church of preachers. Amen? If we labored as much as we did for spiritual things as we did for physical, from this church, there would shine a light so bright that would never be extinguished. If we labored for the spiritual things as we did for our physical food and money to put that food on the table, I believe our church would plant another church every year. If we labored on the spiritual things as much and equal to the physical things, I believe that every church member would be given a Bible study because it would light a fire in our hearts that would just consume us until we find someone to tell about Jesus. If we would put as much effort into the spiritual things as we do into the physical, the church would be so full that we would have to buy another hundred chairs and knock down this wall because there would be standing room only if we labored equal to, not beyond, but equal to. If we labored as hard for the spiritual things as for the temporal, our church coffers would be so full we will be able to buy a church on cash. You know, Jesus, He took this and He decided to give them this object lesson from which He was about to dive into about physical food versus spiritual food. Let's continue, verse 28. John six twenty-eight. The Bible says, Then said they unto Him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you what? That you believe on Him whom He hath sent. Friends, that is the work that we should be doing today. This is our first work that we might what? Believe. We have to work on believing. I want you to see this because many of us, we sit here and we go, you prove it to me, then I'll believe, isn't it? But Jesus says true faith, it really isn't found at church and not dependent upon any person. If we are to truly believe, it is a labor of our own doing. Do you understand that? It is a labor of our own doing. Verse 30, they said, therefore unto him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe what dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Can you believe this? The Pharisees, still at the end of it, they come and say, show us a sign. 
If our work is to believe, I want you to show us a sign so that we can believe. Isn't that what we were just talking about? Many of us, we think that you got to prove it to us, then we'll believe. We think really faith is so easy. We misunderstand this. The result and the work of faith is very easy. It does not need you or I to accomplish it. All we need to do is get to that point of belief. But many of us are too lazy to believe. Let me say that again. The Bible says, labor for that which does not perish, for the meat that will bring everlasting life. Friends, if we are to labor for that meat, it requires work. And these guys came to Jesus and said, we want to do the work of God. And Jesus simply said, this is the work you have to believe. Once you get that faith in your heart, it will do the rest for you. It is the power of God to what? Salvation. God said, let there be light. There was light. The Word itself was self-fulfilling, but to get the Word into our heart that we might believe will require labor on our behalf. And as I said, many of us are too lazy to obtain it. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said what? I am the bread of life. If you jump down with me to verse 41, the Jews murmured at him because he said what? I am the bread which came from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? In this discourse that Jesus has with these people and the, the disciples that are following him, beyond the twelve, there were many other people that were following Christ. And he said, I am that bread from heaven. And he says, if you eat of me, I'll give you what? Everlasting life. Verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh to me. And then jump down to verse 48. I am what? That bread of life. Three times it is repeated. Three times in this discourse at the end, Jesus makes it very clear. I am the bread of life. Verse 50, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am what? The living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. There is no mistaking what Jesus is trying to communicate to his hearers. There's no mistaking what Jesus is trying to do. At the very beginning in John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. He gives them an object lesson. People are ready to make him king. He dismisses them. And then they come looking for him. And he says, I know why you came, because you want that bread. But that's not the reason why I came. That's what he's saying. I did not come so I could heal your soldiers. I did not come that I would give your soldiers food. Basically, he's saying what? I did not come as what you think I'm coming for. Do you understand that? And he keeps saying, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never die. You'll live. You'll have everlasting life. God will resurrect you up at the end of time. He made it very clear in John chapter 6. I'm not here for your physical needs. I'm here for your spiritual. What does it mean to eat the body of Jesus and to drink His blood? For in verse 54 to 57, He describes it again. You got to eat my flesh. You got to drink my blood. It was a spiritual kingdom that Christ was trying to set up in the minds of these people. And you know what, friends? You are what you eat. Do you know that? Physically. We're talking from a physical standpoint. I speak as a man, like Paul. You are what you eat. We are a product of what we put in our bodies. Disease does not come by accident. We get sick because of what we put in our bodies or how we choose to live our life. It is what? It is what, how we live our life is a cause to an end. We cannot, we cannot, uh, sorry, it, it slipped my mind for a second. We cannot deny Mother Nature. We can't deceive her. You don't eat well, you're going to get sick. You don't live well, you're going to get sick. Jesus says, if you are to have life, you've got to eat my blood, uh, eat my flesh, and drink my blood. What does this really mean? It means to allow Christ to be totally in us, fully saturated from the inside to the out. It's not that these people were saying, how can you say you want us to eat you? I don't think that the disciples, they understood that Jesus was saying, I want you to kill me and I want you to literally take my flesh and eat it and drink it. Are you with me? I don't think anybody understood that day that that is exactly what Jesus was saying. What does it mean then? To eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ is to receive Him as a personal Savior believing that He forgives our sins and that we are complete in Him. It is by beholding His love, by dwelling upon it, by drinking it in that we are to become partakers of His nature. What food is to the body 
Christ must be to the soul. Food cannot benefit us unless we eat it. The Scriptures cannot benefit us unless we labor to put it in us, unless it becomes a part of our being. So Christ is of no value to us if we do not know Him as a personal Savior. And I've got this point underlined. I want you to remember this. A theoretical knowledge will do us what? No good. We must feed upon Him, receive Him into our heart so that His life becomes our life. His love, His grace must be assimilated. And friends, I believe that many of us today have a theoretical knowledge of Jesus. We don't have an experimental knowledge. You know what a theoretical knowledge is? It's just head knowledge. You just heard about it. You come to church and you've heard about the Sabbath, you've heard about the mark of the beast, you've heard about justification and sanctification, but you have no idea what it means. And a theoretical knowledge will do us what? No good. In fact, a theoretical knowledge does us more harm than good. But what is opposite to this? Councils for the Church, page 186, paragraph 1. The masses professing to be Christians have been satisfied to be what? Spiritual dwarfs. They have no disposition to make it their object to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Hence, godliness is a hidden mystery to them. They cannot understand it. They know not Christ by what? Experimental knowledge. Friends, we have to go beyond just head knowledge. And many of us, we grow up with this. If you've grown up in the Adventist church, many of us, we have head knowledge. But what will help us and what will save us is experimental. And what is connected to that? We have to have some sort of disposition to make it our object to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Unless we do this, we will only ever have head knowledge. Let me say it differently. Head knowledge or theoretical knowledge, you come to church, you hear the sermon. You come on a Thursday night, you listen to the study. On a Friday night, you hear about another study. But when you go home, you have nothing to do with Christ whatsoever. People are surprised that you are even called a Christian. You have no idea what it means to study the Scriptures. You don't know what it means to walk with Jesus on a daily basis. Theoretical knowledge is never going to save us. It will do us no good. We need to have an experimental knowledge, an experience with Christ. Christ's Object Lessons, page 48, paragraph 1, there are very many who claim to serve God, but who have no experimental knowledge of Him. Their desire to do His will is based upon what? Is based upon what? What is own inclination? Many people's desires to serve God is based upon feeling. Do you know that? Not upon the deep conviction of what? The Holy Spirit. You know, 
you will be surprised how many of us will come to church only when we feel like it. That's inclination. You'd be surprised how many of us are affected in what we believe by how we feel. Youth, but even adults as well. I feel tired, so I'm not going to go. I've had a long week. I'm exhausted, so I don't want to do it. But I'm telling you, if the Holy Spirit gave you this deep conviction that Sabbath is so holy, Sabbath is such an important day, guess what? Your whole week you're preparing for that day. But many of us, hey, you coming to church this Sabbath? We'll see. Because I want to know how tired I'm going to be when I get to Friday. You, you understand that? Many of us, we don't have this experimental knowledge. It is based mostly on our inclination, how we feel. I'm telling you, friends, if we all live by principle, we would have a consistent number here every week, and it would only grow from there. It would never go down. But the reason why our church attendance, yo-yo is like this, is because some people just don't feel like going. They just broke up with their girlfriend. They just had a stressful Friday where they had three exams back to back. You know what I mean? They had to work until the very last time, minute before the, the sun set, and they've just been feeling tired. They've been waking up really early every morning, five, six o'clock, and they have to, they have no choice. But now I have a choice, I don't feel like it. Do you understand this? Am I describing any of your experiences? Their conduct is not brought into harmony with what? The law of God. They profess to accept Christ as their Savior, but they do not believe that He will give them power to overcome their sins. They have not a personal relation with a living Savior, and their characters reveal defects, both hereditary and cultivated. Friends, the Word of God, if we are to overcome at last and to have an experimental knowledge of Jesus, there must be a consistent walking with Jesus. Consistent. Rain, hail, or shine. We must not allow our feelings to determine how we're going to act, and even based upon that fact of getting the Word of God in our hearts. Look, some of you, you say, look, I, I can't read the Bible when I first wake up. I feel too tired. Just do it. And keep doing it until you wake up and you can read the Word of God and understand it. Amen? That is not based on feeling. It's called habit. It's called principle. It's called knowing that you have to do this because this is so important. It is a conviction from the Holy Spirit itself. Friends, do you have head knowledge only? Or do you actually have an experimental knowledge of Jesus Christ? Let me show you the result. I want us to continue in verse 58. 
This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Jesus made it a very clear statement. And look at what they say in verse 60. Many therefore of His disciples, when they heard this, said what? This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Not hard to understand. Hard to receive. Let me show you the result. Verse 66. From that time, many of His disciples went back and went and walked no more with Him. Because of what Jesus said, many people left. You know, I need to skip a few quotes here. Three ninety one, paragraph three of Desire of Ages. The test was too great. The enthusiasm of those who had sought to take him by force and make him a king grew what? Cold. Within the same chapter, just the day before, they were ready to make Jesus king. And now Jesus gives this very clear discourse and sets out his position as to why he would come, and they're ready to reject him. This discourse in the synagogue, they declared, had opened their eyes. Now they were what? Undeceived. Ah, now we see clearly, they're saying. In their minds, his words were a direct confession that he was not what? The Messiah. And that no earthly rewards were to be realized from connection with him. They had welcomed his miracle working power. They were eager to be freed from disease and suffering, but they would not come into sympathy with his self-sacrificing life. They cared not for the mysterious spiritual kingdom of which he spoke. The insincere, the selfish who had sought him no longer desired him. If he would not devote his power and influence to obtaining their freedom from the Romans, they would have nothing to do with him. At the end of this discourse that Jesus had with the disciples, he set very clearly the reason why he was here. He didn't come to make people rich. He didn't come to bless them physically only. And when they saw that there was no benefit, they left. Now look, today, we're not exactly like that. I don't think we misunderstand Christ and His mission. We just misunderstand Christ and what He expects of us. If we are to make it into heaven, we're not going to get there by accident, friends. Are you with me? It's long, hard-fought battles with self. It's making calculated decisions on how to spend your time. How you're going to labor for the meat that does not perish. 
If Jesus is to give us any benefit whatsoever, it's in the spiritual realm and not the physical. The physical will come later. But I believe that many today still misunderstand Christ Himself. If God doesn't bless you, are you still going to come? If God doesn't help you, are you still going to come? If God doesn't do this for you and do that for you, if your prayers are not answered, are you still going to come? If your life takes a turn for the worse, are you still going to come? If you lose your kid, are you still going to come? If you lose your spouse, are you still going to come and be faithful to Him? If God doesn't help you with your exam, with your work, with your marriage, are you still going to come? Be faithful to Him. Many of us were too emotional, wishy-washy. Someone offended me, I'm not going to come anymore. It wasn't even God, it was someone. You know what I mean? Our faith today, I find, is too shallow. It's too weak. It's dependent upon how we feel. What someone said to me. What God did for me. Whether I feel good or not. So much of how we live our Christian life has got nothing to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's got everything to do with self. Ellen White says in Great Controversy 622, paragraph 4, the time of trouble such as never was is soon to open upon us, and we shall need an experience which we do not now possess and which many are too indolent to claim, to obtain. You know what Jesus did with His, with his speech and His little sermonette there? He induced what we call a shaking. Do you know that? Jesus intentionally said what He said, and those that were insincere were shaken out. Many left because of what Christ said. Friends, at the end of a time, there will be a shaking. It's called the time of trouble such as never was. And we today are going to need an experience that many of us do not now possess. And many more are too what? Indolent. You know what another word for indolent is? It's lazy. Salvation does not come by accident, friends. When you get to heaven, you're not going to open your eyes and say, God, how did I get here? I had no idea. I'm so glad I made it. No one gets to heaven or hell without not knowing the reason why. If we are to get there at last, we got to see the spiritual kingdom. And maybe some of you this morning are sitting here and saying, you know what? I don't even care if I get there or not. But it's because you've not tasted of the sweetness and the goodness of Christ. You've never had depression taken away from you. 
You never had, had be, been kept awake at night wondering what on earth you're doing here on this earth or even why you're here in Malaysia. Trouble has never struck your life and, and so you've, you've not even thought about it for a minute and so life has been too good. You're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and you've not gotten to that point of your need where you've come to a brick wall and nothing on this earth can solve it except Jesus Christ. Friends, you don't have to get into depression. You don't have to lose countless hours of sleep at night. You don't have to hit rock bottom like the prodigal son in order to understand the gift of grace that Jesus offers to us today. You don't. We don't need the time of trouble to shake us awake. We can be ready today. But what will it take for us to rise and go to Jesus? What will it take for us to say, Lord, we're ready to shake off all that dust of indolence and laziness and all these things that distract us all the time to now really focus on that which really matters? When are we going to really labor for the meat that perishes not? Friends, the mark of the beast is real and it's round the corner. With every day that passes by, we take one day closer to the end of time. How will it be with your soul in that great day? Are you ready? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you where you should be? Have you been laboring for that bread that does not perish? It's going to require work. And what many of us fail to do in times of peace and prosperity, we're going to have to do under the most forbidding circumstances. You're still getting distracted by the kids at the back and my kids at the front. I'm sorry. But friends, if we are to follow Jesus all the way to the end, if we're to be the last man and woman standing, it requires work today. Work. It requires effort. It requires stress. It requires blood, sweat, and tears. If we are to labor for these things, it requires study. It requires time. It requires putting aside friends. It requires putting aside family. It requires sacrificing of sleep. It requires many things, maybe even sacrifice of your money. If we're to labor for the meat that does not perish. So dear brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to come on a Thursday night. Just one night a week. This is the night that we come here together on a Thursday night and study the book of Daniel. Maybe you studied the book of Daniel before. But there's nothing wrong with getting a refresher and a revival. Amen? We got to labor. Sit through traffic. Get home a bit later than usual. Feel tired at the end of the day. 
It requires labor. It requires work. It requires effort if we want Jesus to walk with us. You got to start sometime, friends. I thought long and hard about canceling the Daniel studies. It's a lot of labor for me, you know. But this sermon has made me rethink about it. I, I've asked people, you guys know who you are. I said, should we continue this Daniel study? I have Tuesday night prayer meetings. I have Wednesday night at DAC. I have Thursday night at SAC. I have Friday night at care group. When can I spend a quiet moment with my wife, I ask myself. It requires labor. And then maybe you sit there and go, well, Ben, you, you got the days off. Well, every four days a week, Monday to Thursday, I teach salt. Do you know how many hours I have to sit in front of my computer to make this sermon? The whole of yesterday. From morning till the late afternoon. You know how many hours it takes me to prepare for a Wednesday and a Thursday night Bible study on Daniel? And then have Bible studies. I have Bible worker meetings. And many of you ask me, what do you do, Ben? What do you do? As if you have no idea what it means to work and be tired. Friends, we got to labor. But we got to put that effort in the right place. Right? What are Bible worker meetings? They're not going to get us one step closer to heaven. That's not laboring for the meat that doesn't perish. But when we learn to sit down at the feet of Jesus and learn of Him, I ask you again, when are you going to do that? When is the last time that you did that? I'm not asking you when's the last time you listened to a sermon. When is the last time that you labored to understand what the Word of God means to you in its totality and its entirety from what you have studied itself. If we did that, let me say it again, we would have a church of preachers. Amen? You would be coming up to me and says, wow, I didn't see that, but you know what? Look what I found in John chapter 6. You know what I mean? We'll be learning from each other. We'll be ironing, uh, iron, sharpeneth iron. We'll be growing together if we learn to labor personally for that bread that does not perish. We would have more Sabbath schools because we'll be excited. We'd have to start Sabbath school earlier. I wouldn't have to teach on Thursday night anymore. Praise the Lord. Because someone else would be. Amen? If we would labor for the bread that does not perish, this work in this church would be finished without any pastor. I have to labor just as hard for giving a sermon, you know. It's stressful. I'm actually thankful that it's not every week. It's one week here, one week at DAC. I get to preach the same sermon for two weeks. People think it's glorious going traveling to preach, but I have to prepare six sermons to preach in one weekend. It's stressful. 
but we got to labor for the meat that does not perish. Friends, is that your desire? This week, let us put in more effort than we have ever before, not just to read the Bible, but to study it, to understand what it means to each and every one of us, that would allow one verse to speak to our hearts so deeply that would start a fire in our hearts that would never stop until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's stand, shall we, as we sing our closing song, Nearer, Still Nearer. That is my prayer for each of us, that in this coming week, we would be praying, we would be living, that Jesus would draw even closer to us this week than He has in the past.